0: All they solely treat is um, cancer. Um, And they looked at my profile. They looked at my scans and what had happened. And then they instantly referred me to the oncologist that I have now. And my first meeting with him, I sat down and I said to him what I'd been previously told. And he looked at me and he said, look, there's not going to be any doom and gloom in this situation. We're not going to talk about numbers. We're not going to talk about years. We're going to talk about curative intent. And I remember when I when he said that, my mum and I just kind of like broke down and blubbed and it was like, yeah. oh my God, that's, you know, I, I can't believe it because the last kind of, I think it was about three weeks I'd gone from kind of finding out this two-year prognosis mm-hmm. to him actually turning around and saying to me, no, there is something that we can do. It was just this relief that, oh my God, okay, potentially mm-hmm. there is the chance that actually I am going to see past my 27th birthday.
1: Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is one of a series of Pursuing Health stories where I feature the inspiring stories of regular, everyday people who've used lifestyle to overcome some incredible health challenges. And this week's episode was no exception. I shared a conversation with Fran Whitfield, who's a London-based personal trainer, and at the age of 25, learned she had breast cancer that had been to her brain and her liver, and she was initially given a prognosis of just two years to live. Now, I cannot imagine what it feels like to be facing such a challenge, but I met Fran a couple of weeks ago at the CrossFit Games and was blown away by her story and her mental and physical resilience. She really exemplifies what it means to be her own advocate and also use her experience to advocate for so many others. As we were having this conversation, there were so many times that Fran would offer an insight or a lesson that I knew I needed to hear personally or could directly apply to my own life. So I hope you enjoy hearing her story as much as I did and you learn some things that you can take home for yourself. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So with that, let's get started with the episode. All right. Well, welcome to Pursuing Health. I am very excited to be here with Fran Whitfield, who I recently met for the first time at the 2021 CrossFit Games. And you have such an incredible story. I was practically in tears the first time um, oh. you and hearing your story. And so I'm really excited for you to join me here on the podcast and just share it with our audience. So thank you so much no, for
0: joining you. us all the way thank from UK. <laughs> yeah, all the way from good old London, rainy yeah. London. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: let's just start off with your background. So I know that you are a trainer over in the UK and you've always been very athletic, but tell us just about your background and and. How training has been important to you?
0: Yeah, so um I have been a personal trainer now for I think five years, and I'm coming up for my sixth year now. Um yeah, I got into it originally. I went to university and I studied psychology, and then when I was at university, I got very much into weightlifting and um training through that, and then um, I had a complete 360, um, career change. I kind of went, my desire was to do clinical psychology and then I completely mm-hmm. changed it. And then I went into personal training. Um, there's a lot of uh, overlap, very, though, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it, um, cause I started training like friends of mine and then kind of, I then saw like the amazing mental health side effects that it mm-hmm. has, um, in like growing their confidence and, um, and they were just coming along to the gym and started training with me and it was kind of at that time where like you know females didn't really weightlift. it was kind of a bit like oh should I weightlift? lift you know I don't want to get bulky yeah. and all of that kind of stuff and nervous to enter the weight room and everything and then when they saw started to see me going in there they were like oh can I join my session with you and and then I thrived off of it I love taking those three sessions and them training with me and then seeing the benefits that it was having from them and their confidence and watching them grow and I was like I really loved this
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so, yeah, I did a complete three hundred and sixty, and then retrained as a personal trainer, and then I've been doing that now um, in London, yeah, for about five six years. Um, into like with my own fitness, I've dabbled in lots of different things: weightlifting, endurance training. Like I was training for Ironman, done duathlons, triathlons, um kind of experimented with those, and. Um, I think at the beginning when I got into fitness, it was very much the kind of aesthetics and that sort of thing. And then it then became very much a performance drive Um, Mm -hmm. quite quickly, actually, when I, um, I've been sort of more like performance based, I would say for the last kind of uh, four years, Um, training for different events and races and um, CrossFit now as well. Um, That's my kind of like my drive now. I only really do CrossFit um, at the moment. Also because of obviously everything else that's been going on that we will yeah. get into, but um, that's my kind of like soul training at the moment. Um, but yeah, I did it for, I do it for performance and I do it for my own mental health as well. Um, I was very insecure growing up as a child. Um, I had body dysmorphia. Um, I had an eating disorder as well when I was younger and it was through weightlifting and it was through training that actually got me out of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I grew my confidence and got my weight back on track. Um, and so pretty much like exercise and training saved me, um, in my mental health as I was like, growing up into a young adult.
1: Wow. That's amazing. And I think, You know, I hear that from many women that just this shift in mindset about what training is from burning. And I know I I experienced it personally from something that you do to burn calories and to look a certain way to moving into maybe more weightlifting or doing it for performance, where Mm. you're trying to always get better and learn, learn new skills and increase the weight you can lift or the times that you can do workouts in. And suddenly, Um, It just completely changes the way that you think about your body and your relationship with your body. So that's amazing that you had that experience too.
0: Mm. Yeah, hugely. And it really benefits as well, because obviously like when you're trying to, when your drive shifts from being kind of the whole like weight loss and, you know, trying to be as like slim as you can, um, Mm -hmm. which is what I used to be. And then when you then actually try and be as strong as you can to do that, you need to eat a lot. (laughs) <laughs> and so then that really benefited me. So I was like, well, I really want to get strong, but the only way that I'm going to get strong is if I eat. And then that kind of like forced me then to get my eating back mm-hmm. on track, um, to stop skipping all the meals that I was. And it, yeah, it came hand in hand really. That's incredible.
1: So, you know, training became such a big part of your life or training other people, you're focused on your own performance, your A very young, healthy, active 20, 22, 23 year old. And then one day you noticed that something wasn't quite right with your body. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, it was January, 2019. Um, it was when it all first kind of started to kick off. So, uh, it was one evening that I was just in my flat. Um, I just adopted my cat this is such a random story, but I just adopted (laughs) my cat. He was in bed with me and he was padding incessantly on my chest. And I kept pushing him off and I was like, get off, Sazie, get off. And um, I was like, God, this cat's really bizarre. Like, why does he keep like padding away on my boobs? And then as I brushed him off, I then felt something as I brushed him. And I was like, oh, that's really strange. I felt something on me. And then, I and then, so I, and I'd never really checked before because I, you know, is it like a 23, 24 year old, you're like, No, I don't, like, it's not really anything that's, like, prominent in your mind to check at that time. Um, But I felt a very significant lump in my right breast. And I was like, okay, this is unusual. Um, Had a little bit of a panic. So the following day, I then called up the GP, booked in to see them. um, and, And so I went down straight away, saw my doctor, and she felt it, and she confirmed that there was a lump there. So she referred me for a scan at the hospital. Um, to obviously check what was going on so I went down for the scan the following week um, but when I went in they asked you all the routine questions you know what do you do for a job obviously I said personal trainer are you fit and healthy yes like I was, at, the, at the time I was training for Ironman so I was like yes I am probably the fittest I've ever been in my life and um, and I kind of ticked all the boxes of someone that was, you know, fit, healthy. Obviously, I was young, vegetarian. Do you smoke? No. Do you drink? No. Um, and then she then just said to me, you don't need the scan. Um, it's a hormonal lump. You're normal. You're fine. You're young. You're fit. You're healthy. Good luck with Iron Man. And then that was it. And then I kind of set, got sent back out the door. The appointment was super quick and I didn't get the scan that I went there for obviously you take kind of their word for it and so I thought okay fine it's nothing nothing to be a concern of until last year um and I wasn't aware like I knew I'd kind of in my mind it was like a niggle because I knew it was still there but I hadn't become aware of how big it had actually grown Mm -hmm. um it was growing internally so it wasn't growing you know out pushing out on my skin I so I could and I had quite large breasts and obviously as a young female as well your tissue is denser Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to feel that it was getting larger so Mm -hmm. um it wasn't until last year um and it was in May that I'd actually had an accident it was during lockdown and I've had an accident in my garden doing a deadlift and Mm -hmm. I'd slipped a disc in my back and um it paralyzed my left leg so I went into hospital had emergency spinal surgery and I was in rehab for that. And one day I just started to get in really severe stabbing pains,
2: mm.
0: exactly where the lump was. Um, and I kind of just sort of, well, my my mind was quite focused on the fact that I was trying to learn to walk again. Yeah. Um, you were a little preoccupied. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, come on. Like, you know, don't need any more pain in my life right now. I'm trying yeah. to get over this, obviously like back pain. Um, uh but it just wouldn't go away I had the the stabbing pain for about a week and then I was just kind of like okay this isn't like this isn't going away like wasn't sure whether it was kind of a side effect of potentially like the drugs that I was on for um my back but then when I was in the shower um I noticed that a dimple had appeared in my right breast this was like early July now it was about six weeks after my back surgery so the dimple had appeared in my right breast where the um, where I knew the lump was. I knew that wasn't a good sign. Um, I'd obviously, I'd previously kind of researched into signs of breast cancer when I originally found the lump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that that was a sign. Um, but in my mind, I'd kind of thought, well, it's painful. And everyone says, if it's a painful lump, then you'll be okay. But mm. I was like, mm, okay, following morning, called up the doctor again. And I was like, right. Um, you know, they knew obviously from my record that I'd been yeah. there previously a couple of years before. Um, and then, so I said to her, well, I really feel like I need to get this checked out. A lump, a, a dimple was appeared and because of COVID, because of the pandemic, there was going to be quite a large delay on getting mm-hmm. seen to, Um, but I couldn't handle that. I knew in my body that there was just something not right with this situation. so. I paid for a rapid diagnostic test, got seen straight away by a consultant. Who, when I went into the room with him, I remember clear as day. I went in and he examined me physically, like examined me, and then asked me to come and sit back down. I remember sitting back down with him and just thinking, I really feel like I need to say like sorry for wasting his time. You know, there's a pandemic. Like I know that I've been told Mm. this is normal. This is a hormonal lump. So I sat down and I just said, I'm really sorry if I wasted your time. And he just looked at me straight in the eye and he said, I need you to go next door and I need you to have an ultrasound and the biopsy. I was like, okay. Thinking it maybe this is just routine. Um, and then, so they took me off to the room next door. I had the biopsy, came back through. And then he then said to me, I'm going to be very straight with you. Um, I'm very concerned about what I can feel. And also the radiographer next door, who was just on your ultrasound has emailed me through just now to say, she is also very concerned. Uh, we'll get the results in three days time. You need to come back with a chaperone. So at that point I was kind of, everyone says like, Oh, you know, try and keep a positive mind, but just yeah. the way that he looked at me and the way that he said it, I was like, this isn't, this isn't going to be okay. Um, and sure enough three days later I went back in and they diagnosed me with breast cancer. Um, and obviously at that time, you're kind of like, you don't really know how to feel because a, I was 25 and I was kind of like, well, I'm the fittest apart from obviously my back, I am probably the fittest and strongest I've ever been. And I tick all the boxes of someone that typically shouldn't get cancer, you know, non-smoker, non-drinker really, and vegetarian, uh, very active lifestyle, zero family history of it. Mm -hmm. um but also in the back of my mind knowing that if I had been taken seriously previously when I originally went there then it would have also been cancer then too because I did say to Mm -hmm. him that I found this before if they had scanned me would it have still been cancer and he said the size of the tumor this has been there for a very long time so I knew in him saying that that you know but when I initially got the result, it was quite positive in that time. So when, when I spoke to him and we got the result and we got the genetic makeup of the tumor, it was non-aggressive. It was slow growing, uh, which was quite rare for someone of my age. Usually it's quite aggressive. And he said that it's easily treatable and it's curable, but, um, just to be safe, we're going to do a full body scan just to make sure. And then in those two weeks preceding that, Um, I had seven different scans because each one kept flagging up another issue after another Mm. issue that they then sort of tried to like dive in a little bit deeper until two weeks from the day that I was diagnosed. Um, I essentially I was getting wheeled in to have brain surgery because what they had actually discovered was that in that time that I was misdiagnosed, it had metastasized and I had a tumour in my skull, um, and I also had a tumour in my liver. So I had brain surgery two weeks after, um, didn't really have time to kind of think about it or time to breathe. It was literally like every day I was pretty much going in for a different scan until they then mm-hmm. obviously found this brain one and then said to me, you have a choice. We do surgery or we try and treat it non-surgically. However, they did then say to me that my prognosis would be most likely two years. So I was like, well, that leads wow. me to 27 what on earth do you do by the time you're 27 and you know I've got so many ambitions so many aims um, so I was like I'll sign on the dotted line let's go, let's do surgery Yeah, straight in um, and it went really well, Like the surgery went really well, they removed about 80% of it they said um, but they couldn't remove all of it because it was tangled up in muscles and nerves um, so if they did try and do what they wanted to do which essentially was kind of scrape it all out um I would have been left with permanent nerve and um muscle damage which to be fair I kind of do already I have really weird spots in my head where like if I touch (laughs) I feel it in different places in my face it's very bizarre um and if I like scratch my temple it feels like someone's tickling my eye it's quite funky um but yeah it's quite odd but the surgery was very successful it did go well they did remove a large majority of it but obviously I would need subsequent treatment to follow up. So, um, that was in August last year. And then in September, the day after my birthday, um, I started chemotherapy. Um, so I did chemo for six months. Um, by which point I was actually at a different hospital because I didn't like the fact that I was given this prognosis of two years and I wanted to fight. Um, and it was kind of, and my old oncologist had said to me, if this comes back, as." If the brain tumor comes back as secondary to your breast, then we're looking at two years. And when the results came back from the lab after my surgery and it confirmed two years, I was like, okay, I'm out. I'm not giving, I'm not having two years. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to fight this and I need someone to back me and fight me as well. And very thankfully and gratefully, I got referred to um, a specialist cancer hospital in London and my oncologist there um, he is incredible and I literally owe him everything. Um, and he now is trying to treat me with curative intent. So he's had a, an amazing career. Um, I'm very lucky that I've got him. Um, but we're kind of plowing everything at my treatment at the moment. So, yeah, I had six months of uh, pre-aggressive chemotherapy. That took me until March this year. Then I had cyber knife radiotherapy um, to my skull, just as kind of, they call it like an insurance technique, I suppose, to make sure it doesn't come back. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had lots of x-rays going into my skull. It was completely like painless. Um, It's a very amazing machine that they've got, like modern technology these days and modern medicine is incredible. Um, But I had that in April. And then I'm now on a targeted therapy drug, which is a relatively new drug. Um, But it's called a bemacyclib. And um, it basically stops two proteins in my body from working that cause the cancer to grow. Um, So we're testing that at the moment. So I haven't had my breast surgery yet because they're using the tumor. They're watching it to see whether or not it's shrinking with the drug that I'm on. Um, So far, so good. I do have my scan tomorrow um uh, my next one tomorrow to see whether or not um it's still doing its job. Um and then we kind of we'll go from there and and then see. But at the moment um, I'm still very much in treatment yeah I'm on the mm-hmm. uh, the targeted therapy I'm also on hormonal therapy to block all of my hormones so as a 26 year old female I am in the menopause um, I have all the hot flushes and the night sweats and everything that comes with the menopause and so me and my mum are very much on the same page at the moment uh, yeah. <laughs> and have all of the same things um, but yeah in a kind of n- n- nutshell I'll try to sort of concise that as much as I could um that has been my last 12 months so (laughs) whenever I've been talking about the pandemic I'm like yeah my mind's kind of focused on something else at the moment (laughs) like as awful as COVID is as well um it did not make treatment easy um because you had to I had to go through everything on my own I wasn't allowed like visitors or anything like that um but yeah 2020 was a bit of a bit of a wild one (laughs) wow (laughs)
1: That is, there is a lot there. I have so many questions. Yeah. <laughs> do I want to dig in on, but I think the thing that comes through the most strongly for me is just your mental attitude and your resilience through all of it. And I imagine that, you know, there was there are still a lot of up and down moments. But but just as you started to explain, can you can you share what it felt like in that moment to find out that you did have breast cancer, or even when you found out it had metastasized, knowing that maybe it could have been caught a year and a half earlier Mm. and what kind of emotions and how you were able to process those.
0: Yeah. So I think inevitably, obviously, um, anger was the Mm -hmm. first emotion that you feel in that moment and hurt. um, I trusted the person that said to me that I was normal. And I remember her clear as day saying to me, you're normal, you're fine. Mm -hmm. And so I went all that time thinking that I was just normal. Um, And that I just had this, you know, hormonal lump and that was that um so I was incredibly angry at that moment especially when they then discovered that it had metastasized and I was given a prognosis of two years essentially that person had shortened my life um but I kind of very quickly um came out of that mindset a lot of people say to me like oh I bet you know you wish you could be in a room with that woman and give her like, you know, give her how. And actually, no, I don't, because that isn't going to help my situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I am in this situation now, this has happened to me. Um, I have notified the hospital and, you know, she has been notified. Um, but I notified them in the premise that they learn from this, you know, I don't want anyone losing their job. I don't want anyone, you know, having to go through, any kind of like hardship from it what, what i do want them to do is learn from this mistake so that the next time a 24 year old goes in there um and says i've discovered a lump um but they might be of complete 100 health you know mm-hmm. with everything else um they're not ignored and they're not disregarded so kind of the fuel and the anger that I had towards the situation very much turned into a fight to change the situation in the best way that I can. Like I can't change my situation now. Um, so it's not helpful. I kind of adopted this mindset of it's not helpful to me to sit there and to be angry towards that person, um, and that situation because it isn't going to change it, but I can use that to fuel What I can change, which is trying to change the policy Mm -hmm. that they have at the moment, which is unfortunately, if you go in there as a young person with a lump, it's not policy to be scanned. It's actually only policy to be scanned if you are over the age of 45. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm very much trying to strive for that, to have that change so that any young person goes in there and has noticed a slight difference in their body, they are completely taken seriously and they are checked to an inch of their life. Um But also I'm using it as a kind of fuel to change the mindset that um, you unfortunately aren't safe from cancer. It doesn't discriminate. Um, The statistic knows now one in two in the UK. Um, So I'm very much open about my situation and what happened to me and everything so that people do pick up on any slight changes to their body Um, and then they fight for the scan and -hmm. they resist against the scan if I could go back there now I would obviously not leave the room until I had that scan Mm -hmm. um but yeah instead of kind of using that fuel in sort of a detrimental way which I think would be as if I was to sit there and be upset about it and you know and of course there are times where I am Mm -hmm. it's very natural to be upset about it and to when you're very much like in depth of treatment and it's exhausting sometimes and you just kind of think my situation could be so different right now um but I try and just snap out of that and I think okay well it can't be like I'm in it so I'm gonna I'm gonna fight it I'm gonna do what I can in this moment but I'm also gonna try and sure as hell try and not let this happen to as many other people as I possibly can mm-hmm it's amazing. And see
1: your, your background in psychology coming through very strong there yeah. in the way you've been able to apply it in your own life. And I think yeah. it's such yeah. a, a beautiful example for all of us in any situation that we're in, there's things that we can control and things that we can't control, but being able to to focus on what we can control and having those emotions, which are very normal and allowing ourselves to feel them and process them, but then focusing on yeah. what we can control and using using of that situation to help other people or to prevent, you know, prevent it from happening again. So that's incredible. I also love how you said, Hey, if this person's going to give me a prognosis of two years, I don't want to be in this environment, right? You were able to lift yourself out of that environment that was maybe going to be limiting and and find a a care team who was on the same page and wanted to fight aggressively with you. Um, Yeah. So can you just talk about that and what difference that made and why you made that decision?
0: Yeah. Um, so I knew I like I remember sitting at home and having the chat with my family and just feeling this overwhelming feeling of rage that someone had sat there to me and had said to me, "You've got two years, like three maybe at best." And right. I just kind of, and when I and at the time when she said it, obviously like my world was just kind of crashing around and I didn't know how to process that or to what to think but when I came home and then I reheard it and it was just playing over and over in my head and then followed up by when I had the surgery and then I came out of that surgery and they gave me the results to say yes it is a metastasis of the breast cancer and all I kept thinking was her saying if this comes back as a metastasis you've got two to three years um but i knew myself and i knew how strong i could be and i was like well if i can be this strong and i want to plow everything i possibly can into this treatment i don't want someone putting me on a palliative treatment
2: mm-hmm. i
0: want to you know have someone that's actually going to turn around and say to me no these are your options i'm going to explore what those options are um and i think that's a really key thing as well is that a lot of people don't realize that you can get a second opinion and it wasn't a it wasn't me just searching for what i wanted to hear um it wasn't me trying to kind of find out who was going to give me like the happy answer because in the situation there is no happy answer at the end of the day i'm still going to have to go through all of this treatment and i knew mm-hmm. that um but i wanted to find if there was an opinion of someone that would actually turn around and say to me like yes we can we can fight this we can you know we can try and it was pretty easy to get that on my first go. I went to this um, hospital, it's called the Royal Marsden in London and um, all they solely treat is um, cancer. Um, And they looked at my profile, they looked at my scans and what had happened and then they instantly referred me to the oncologist that I have now. And my first meeting with him, I sat down and I said to him what I'd been previously told and he looked at me and he said, look, there's not going to be any doom and gloom in this situation. We're not going to talk about numbers. We're not going to talk about years. We're going to talk about curative intent. And I remember when I when he said that, my mum and I just kind of like broke down and blubbed and it was like, yeah. oh my God, that's, you know, I, I can't believe it because the last kind of, I think it was about three weeks I'd gone from kind of finding out this two-year prognosis mm-hmm. to him actually turning around and saying to me, no, there is something that we can do. It was just this relief that, Oh my God. Okay. Potentially Mm -hmm. there is the chance that actually I am going to see past my 27th birthday. Um, and now we're rolling in it and it was kind of, it was very quick. He got me straight into treatment and he sort of like has plowed everything that, you know, possibly can be done. We've had very high doses of drugs and it has been very aggressive. Um, thankfully like I've not, you know, it's not actually been as like horrendous as I thought it was going to be, but um it was the news that I was hoping to hear. Um, but as I said, it wasn't kind of a case of me just trying to find the like the news that I mm-hmm. wanted. Um, it was more of a is this possible? Can mm-hmm. we do it? And I was very grateful to have someone turn around and say to me, Yes, like if we're if you're ready, we're ready. Mm-hmm. Um and so then we've just been rolling with it since that's then. amazing.
1: That's amazing. I'm so glad that you That you found him and found a a different situation. And I know through the whole treatment and recovery process, you also have been, like you said, very aggressive, but you, because of your fitness and because of your attitude, you have fared extremely well. So can you talk about that? What, first of all, just your recovery after brain surgery, I think you were walking out of the hospital days before anyone (laughs) ever thought that you could
0: yeah yeah so with my brain surgery I was in like London's largest ICU unit um they stuck me in there after. um and the following morning um I was very determined that I wasn't I didn't want to be in this ICU anymore it's kind of like cool as it was I, I was uh, like I was in a spaceship it was very funky um but also being in the pandemic, I didn't get to see my family um I didn't get to i kind of I was communicating with them, but it's very difficult to communicate them when you have a lot of morphine in your body
1: territory
0: um, yeah. yeah, exactly <laughs> and kind of like you can't really look at a screen and you can't really like focus on anything so um but I knew in my heart that I really wanted to see my family, and also for them as well, I think it's very um It's not easy to go through it yourself, obviously, but I do think it's a lot harder for the family and the friends that are around you in that situation because especially in the pandemic, they're not allowed in the hospital to see, they don't know what's going on. Um, And all I kept thinking was like, I want them to see that I'm okay. Like I want to be okay. I want them to see that I'm okay. So I had my um, MRI the following morning just to make sure that there wasn't any um, bleeding or any additional swelling. Um... That all came back fine. So then I moved up to the ward and I was in there. um, The physio came around and said, okay, well, you know, at your own pace, when you are ready, um, we're going to come back and we're going to try and get you out of bed. And I was like, let's do it. And he just looked at me and was (laughs) like, well, not quite yet. He was like, we don't have to do it. I was like, no, no, let's do it. Let's do it. I'm "I'm ready. I'm fine. (laughs) Um, And so then they did, they got me out of bed. We kind of, you know, potted around the ward a little bit got back in then a little bit later on did it again Um, and I think they were kind of shocked as well as I was shocked that I was able to do this but it just really made me appreciate my body and the training that I'd put in before Mm -hmm. because they did say the only reason why I was able to get up and do that was the fact that I'd looked after my body so well previously leading up to this surgery
2: Mm -hmm. which
0: is another thing that I really try and push forward now as well is that when you are training and you are exercising um or if you're not exercising and you're not looking after your body it's actually there's more to it than just doing it for you know aesthetics or doing it for even if you are doing it for performance that's amazing but actually there is so much more to it Mm -hmm. um you don't know what's going to happen to you in your lifetime whether you're gonna you know break an arm break a leg or have to have part of your skull removed like you just don't know yeah, <laughs> but if not. you have looked after your body leading up to that point your recovery will be so much quicker and i'm living proof of that um so yeah within it was just after tw- uh, 24 hours well just under 48 hours actually yeah um i left the hospital i walked out i saw my family i went home um and I was supposed to be in there for a minimum of seven days, but I left under forty-eight hours. So that all came from the fact that I was very like careful with my body, like mm-hmm. leading up to that point. And I had trained to a, a very intense level, and you know, my diet was very good. And um, but because of the fact that I was fit and strong it meant that I was able to leave. I recovered, you know, super fast. I was back exercising within three weeks of my surgery, um, to obviously a, a a less degree than what I went into it in. But, um, I was also very good, like grateful that I had a very good neurosurgeon who knew my position. He knew my desire to exercise when I left the hospital my first thing to him was when can I exercise Mm -hmm. Um, not because I'm obsessive but in my mind I was like I know that I'm going to be having chemotherapy coming up I want to prehab myself like I want Mm -hmm. to make sure that I'm going into chemo in the best physical strength that I can Um, and so I just said to him look you might think that I'm mental but when can I start to exercise again? Um, and he was like, no, I completely understand where you're coming from. Like it's, you know, it's really good that you want to go into chemotherapy strong, very supportive of that. However, please, just for the next couple of weeks, (laughs) don't do anything. You don't want to increase any intracranial pressure and all of that stuff. Um, So, yeah, uh, you know, I listened to them, didn't do anything. The most I did was kind of potter around and walk, which was actually, to be fair, all that I could do. Um, It was sort of like living on a roundabout a little bit. Like my head was very spinny for a couple of weeks. Um, But then I got back into it, just kind of like pedaling a little bit on my stationary bike and then building it up from there so that I knew that when I then went into my next phase of treatment, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I could go in in a kind of physical state that actually... I would be able to get through the next, the, the next bit.
1: I love that. And I love how in every step of this process, you really have been such an advocate for yourself. So even in the hospital, knowing that, you know, being home with your family was important to you and pushing for it. And so easily someone, you know, the PT, the physical therapist could have come by and you could have said, okay, you know, listen to what they said and said, okay, I'll wait another day or I'll take it slow. But knowing what you wanted and advocating for it, and then having a care team around you, That was listening, you know, like your neurosurgeon Mm -hmm. and your therapist saying, if you can meet these milestones and we're comfortable with you going home, then let's get you home with your family. That's incredible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I was very sensible with it, but don't get me wrong. I never once kind of didn't listen. Um, I listened to everything that they said but I worked with them and they worked with me so I never once gave up I think that's the big thing I never once sat there and gave up and just kind of thought okay this is my situation I'm just gonna sit here Mm -hmm. i I kind of instead I was like okay well you know you told me to rest fine but what does that actually mean what does resting actually mean like can I get out of bed right now can i take my own shower can i get changed all those kind of things when i was in in the hospital um and if they said to me yes you can have a shower i was like okay let's have a shower like let's do it and um and you know when i said to them can i change out of this gown i would like to wear my own clothes um yes you can wear your own clothes I was like okay I'm gonna check and you know and they said to me like would you like us to dress you I was like no I'll dress myself like mm-hmm. I would like to be able to dress myself mm-hmm. um also because previously when I did have my back surgery that was pretty horrendous uh, and I was laying flat yeah. on my back for like five days um and I swore that I would never try and I would never go through that again like I would not be using bed pans. I would mm-hmm. not be having sponge baths I would not be brushing my teeth into a cup I was like, no, um, work with me here. Like if we can do things and I can do things and be self-sufficient in some way, Mm
2: -hmm. let me
0: know. And I'm going to try. Um, and it was very much a two way street. So yeah, if they said to me, yes, we can try and stand up now. I was like, okay, cool. You know, obviously if they had said to me hundred percent, no, you're not allowed to move. I would have listened and I wouldn't have pushed it. But as it was I said yeah we can try little things and each little thing that I managed to do was another tick in the box and it got me closer to being home and I think that was a big thing everything that I knew that I was doing just from even being able to take off my hospital gown put on my own clothes that was another tick to me getting closer to going home and seeing my family Mm -hmm. um And I was very grateful that the team that were around me worked with me on that. And I think they could see the drive that I had and they could see the kind of determination that I had. Mm -hmm. Um, Not because I was like, get me out of this hospital. It wasn't that (laughs) at all. It was just more the determination that I had that I wanted to go home and I wanted to, say to my mum and dad, let them see me and yeah. know that I was, I was alive and I was okay and I was well. And they could actually have communication with me and not just communication from the hospital team to tell them that I was okay. Mm-hmm. Because I think any parent doesn't really believe that until they actually see their child in front of them and they're like, oh, okay, she's actually okay.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And cool how maybe the experience with your back Previously, because obviously you went through so much in such a short time, but that experience maybe even helped motivate you and appreciate, be able to appreciate your independence and really fight for it when you were in the hospital again.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I think I lost a lot of independence. So I did. And it's mm-hmm. not, it's not, I think I did lose a lot of independence when I was in the hospital. It was a surgery that I wasn't prepared to have. Um, it was emergency spinal. And uh, also at the time, I kind of, when I went into it, they did say that I would probably be able to go home maybe within like a day or two. And that actually got extended because my body wasn't responding to pain medication. And without me being out of pain, they weren't going to allow me out of the bed. Um, And it got further and further, like day after day. And we weren't able to control the pain. And I wasn't allowed to move. And I wasn't allowed to go to the toilet by myself and wasn't allowed to brush teeth by myself. And I wasn't able to like wash myself and all these kind of things um and I'm you know a very independent self-sufficient person (laughs) you might be able to tell so having someone sponge bath me was just not not your idea of a good time (laughs) no not at all um and I and it kind of did scar me I think and I so when I then went into surgery even though I was like okay this is brain surgery like potentially it's even bigger than spinal I don't really know but um before I went in I didn't know how it was going to be but I just knew that I, I even said to them I was like I am not using a bedpan. Like, okay. <laughs> fine. Like, I'm just going to tell you now we're not doing that. As like, I've done that, that a couple months ago, I am not doing that again. Um and I kind of laid it on the line. I was like please just work with me on this. Um I really want to be able to brush my teeth and I really want to be able to not have to do that. Um, And yeah, it was from that, that kind of, I think I had even more determination to be Mm -hmm. able to actually get out of there and to be self-sufficient by
1: myself. That's amazing. And you talked about getting back into training then after the brain surgery, but I know training was extremely important to you throughout all of your treatment so far. Mm. And, you know, I imagine it looks very different from what your training had been in the past, but can you talk about why that was important to you and what impact that had on your, your entire treatment experience.
0: Yeah. Um, so for me, like training as well was very much a mental health side of it. Like it kind of is what I love. Yeah, like, I love training um, and the thought of kind of having months on end of not being able to do anything. I was like, I just, I'm going to go insane. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I, I like being active you know, even if it is just going out for um, a walk and stuff like that, like I just I like to be active, I like to be moving. Um and I knew that from a mental health perspective, it was really gonna help me, like, you know, I don't think anyone can deny the fact that sort of what happened last year was quite stressful. <laughs> for
2: um, everyone. But obviously, like and <laughs>
0: obviously exercise can help with that. You know, it can, any form of exercise that you enjoy um, can really help with stress levels. So that was a huge part of it was I wanted to be able to still move my body in a, in ways um, that I knew were sensible and that would also, that would help for my mind. Um, But also, just kind of like I started to look into the effects of what exercise and movement can do from a treatment perspective as well and help me getting through the treatments that I knew were coming up. And obviously I knew that chemotherapy probably wasn't going to be um, giggles. I knew it wasn't going to be fun, but I thought, well, if I can try and help myself in any way that I can, I'm going to try that. And the way that I know from being a personal trainer and from obviously years of training before the way that I know how I can help myself is through training. Um, So I spoke to my oncologist about it when I moved to the hospital that I'm in and prior to um, chemotherapy. And I said to him that like, I'll be real. You know, I have had back surgery and I've just had brain surgery. I cannot train to the level that I used to train um, previously. Uh, I was still at a point that I wasn't able to lift like significant weight because mm-hmm. of my back I was still rehabbing that I was still on crutches at this point as well oh so I was still learning to walk um and kind of move um but I had a stationary bike at home and I had resistance bands and I was like can I still do things through chemotherapy um to help myself in that way and he was amazing and he said look do not stop exercising he was like I, I the one thing that he says to his patients is do not stop exercising mainly for the fact that if you do the fatigue is going to take hold of you mm-hmm. and it really does like the fatigue is one of the most debilitating parts of chemotherapy um but thankfully, in the six months that I had it, it didn't really touch me. Um, I had it a couple times during my first phase of chemotherapy, but that was because the drugs that they were using in those first eight weeks, um, they're cumulative and it gets worse each time and they are nasty. Um, so kind of like the third and fourth treatment, my last two um. the the fatigue did naturally hit me however it would only hit me for two three days post infusion and then I would pretty much quickly bounce back and it really shocked people around me because it was like are you even on this like what are you even like you just milking this like what are you doing (laughs) like because I was kind of after about like three four days I would go out and like they would see me and then I would be okay and I was like yeah my body's just responding really well but I I'm still moving so mm-hmm. I cleared everything with him I said like this is the equipment that I've got this is what I'm planning on doing um he bless him was obviously like you know more than me in terms of exercising <laughs> however it that's sounds amazing. okay yeah. um and and so then that's what I did I I very much quickly learn that I couldn't have a plan. I'm very much used to kind of thinking, okay, on this day, like, Mm -hmm. you know, a training plan, I'm very to stick to that training plan. When I was going through treatment that went out the window because you don't know how you're going to feel each day, Mm -hmm. muscular soreness, um, that is very heavy when you're going through treatment as well. I learned very quickly that my volume had to significantly decrease. Mm -hmm. Um, My muscles would get very sore. And the last thing that you want when you're trying to obviously fight the effects of treatment as well is also fight the effects of DOMS. You do not want that. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, even if it was just kind of in that day, I would do sort of like a 20-minute little pedal on the bike. Um, and then I would do some resistance exercises. I would do some like press ups, but on my knees. I would mm-hmm. rest them. I would just do a lot of body weighted training, like lunges and um, things. That was well for me personally. I had to obviously do things that were permitted from my back physio too, in terms of that rehab perspective, but. I really wanted to focus on that as well, because they did say to me that the worry would be going through chemo, that potentially my back rehab would take Mm. a little bit of a sidestep because chemo does have an effect on your muscles and your ligaments and your joints and that kind of thing. But I was also very determined that that wasn't going to happen. And by that point I'd come off of the crutches and, I was able to like, you know, walk by myself. I was able to squat and lunge and all the things that kind of at, at one point when I first did my back, I wasn't sure if I would ever do it and I started to do them. And I didn't want to lose that. Um, so while I was going through chemo, I actually did progress quite well with that as well. So I, I was then starting to lift heavier weights again. Um, I, had, I then got an assault bike in my flat Um, Because it was the pandemic and obviously the gyms were (laughs) shut and stuff, so I got an assault bike and I think kind of like I went into. I remember going into my um, oncologist room and saying, "So I've got this assault bike." I was like, (laughs) "I don't know what that is, but it sounds horrendous." It sounds (laughs) Uh, terrible. (laughs) (laughs) um, I was explaining to him what it was, um, asked him if it was okay if I was to use this, and you know I have used this previously. I've used it a lot. Uh, which is obviously a very much a key thing when you're going through treatment and you're trying to train through treatment. It's doing things that your body already knows mm-hmm. from before. you know you're not if you weren't a runner before, don't try and run a marathon. Um, sticking to things that your body is kind of used to. but even if you haven't trained before, just starting off very light and doing things. but um I the the further I got through treatment and the more I realized actually, I'm not fatiguing here and the side effects that I'm getting from treatment are actually minimal. Um, the nausea went away after I stopped the really nasty drugs. Um, and then when I then went through my last phase of chemo, I didn't really feel anything. Um, mm-hmm. the only thing that I was really kind of getting was hair loss, I suppose, which is completely natural. Mm-hmm. Um, but weirdly my hair started to actually regrow towards the last phase of my chemo. Um, And yeah, they kind of like my, and it responded really well. Like my liver tumor completely disappeared solely through chemo when they did my brain scan post chemo, they couldn't find anything anymore. Um, so they only did the cyber knife as an insurance policy, Mm -hmm. as I said, but um that actually completely had gone um my breast tumor was significantly smaller than before I had started so it showed that the drugs had worked incredibly well um but every time I went in there and I had my follow-up and I, I saw my oncologist every two weeks and I would go in and he would say to me how are you feeling you like, you know how are you doing and i be like yeah I'm fine <laughs> like, I'm, I'm all right like it's all right you know it's okay um and he was like, Are you still exercising? I was like, Yeah, yeah, still doing it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, as much as I can do. And they did kind of like, you know, laugh like a in there, like a of a laugh, I <laughs> suppose. Like, yeah. Okay, sure. Um, but I do put it down to the fact of a yes, okay, like physically I was in a good way before I went in. Um, but arguably I was also a slightly broken because of my back. Like I wasn't yeah. training as much as I was doing, so I don't think it's you know anyone listening to this that might think that you know if you've got like if they have treatment coming up or they're going through it or know anyone like doesn't mean that because they haven't exercised prior to treatment um that they can't start it
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, it just means that you'll be doing obviously significantly different stuff than mm-hmm. um potentially someone that was doing it before but it shows that if you do continue to exercise mm-hmm. through treatment, which is what I'm really trying to strive for. And that's why I've, I've now retrained, um, as a cancer exercise specialist is to promote that and to help people go through treatment, um, and see the benefit that exercise has when hand in hand with
2: mm-hmm. the
0: medical treatment that they're having.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's incredible. It's like you said, it's not only mental health and being able to tolerate the side effects of chemo better, but now the more we're learning that exercise actually does improve your prognosis um, with treatment. So there's so many reasons to do it. And it's, that's awesome that you've been able to really channel your experience into helping others um, with exercise through cancer treatment too. Um, I also just wanted to touch on um, sort of, you know, you've gone through this whole experience and you, just hearing your, your attitude, it's so strong, your resilience and, um, being able to continue with training and now hearing that, you know, the tumor in your brain and in your liver are gone. That has to be an incredible yeah. feeling when you hear that news. Um, yeah. Um, what, what is it? So I, I imagine also though, that it's not always every single day, you know, you wake up with a perfectly positive attitude. So I imagine there are still times where it's difficult. And what, what is it during those times that helps you kind of pull out of it and, and pull back into, switch your thoughts or switch back into more of a positive
0: attitude? Um, so I think the one thing that really helped me, um, right from the very beginning, and it was actually something that my boyfriend first said to me when i was diagnosed was let's just take one step at a mm-hmm. time like minimal steps um and the times that i get down and i feel the saddest are usually the times that I'm getting the most stressed, um, because I'm trying to think of this bigger picture. Um, and I find that those are the days when I wake up, especially if I've got like scans coming up or treatment coming up, or sometimes I just wake up and I just think, well, what does my future actually look like? And that's completely normal. And that's completely natural. And especially when you've got a, uh, Metastatic cancer, as well, you have no idea what the future holds, and that uncertainty, I think, is the most difficult part. Mm -hmm. Like, as humans, we like to know and we Mm -hmm. like to, you know, have certainty in our life and to kind of be faced with complete uncertainty, which happens when you are diagnosed with an illness like this because you have no idea what your scan results are going to be like. You've got no idea on a daily basis how you're going to feel from the drugs that you're on, or if you're in remission, you have no idea if it's going to come back and if it does come back, how that's going to look. And that uncertainty is the most difficult part. And that's the part that affects my mental health the most. But in those times when I do start to feel like that, I then just keep trying to have this attitude that he instilled, that my boyfriend instilled in me is just think of it in one step. And so we do, we just, think of it in really tiny steps if there's ever moments where I feel like I'm getting really overwhelmed and I'm getting really anxious and scared about scans coming up or what that's going to look like and we just think well we don't know what that scan's going to look like so for example tomorrow I've got my next scan I don't know if it's going to be good or I don't know if it's not um so instead of me kind of getting upset about what it could be I just think, well, I don't know right now. So all I now, all I know is I'm going to walk into the hospital and I'm going to have a scan. And that's all I think about. So I literally mm-hmm. just think, okay, at 10 30 AM, I need to be at the hospital. I'm going to have a scan. And I don't think I just, don't, I just block out whatever's going to happen after. after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then from there, it's like, okay. And then after that, I'm going to go and see my oncologist. And then that's all I know. But then, I, don't, I try and not even think about that. I only know so that I turn up on time. But mm-hmm. I just don't think about the results. I don't think about what's going to happen from those results. I just really, we just really broke it down every step through my treatment. And still now, like when I was going through chemo, it was like, okay, well, Tuesday morning, like Tuesday was always chemo day. So I always mm-hmm. knew that on a Tuesday it was chemo day. So I just literally would break it down to, okay, so Monday, I'm going to pack for chemo Tuesday we'll have chemo I don't know what's going to happen for the rest of the week
2: Mm -hmm. so
0: I don't think about it Mm -hmm. Um, and then I just took every little step as we went through and I've really promoted that as well um, to people that have reached out to me on social media and talked to me about their own treatment plan or their own diagnosis and are feeling very overwhelmed by it Um, I really push for this mindset of just take it literally one tiny step and it really does help and it has helped them Um, and you know to the minimalists like literally just to okay when you're going into hospital Monday 9am all right that's all you have to think about don't Mm -hmm. think about what's going to happen because you just don't know Mm -hmm. Um, and that isn't actually it's not helpful to try and think about You know, try and predict because you don't know so in that mindset it's like well what is going to help me at this moment in time is it going to help me by thinking further ahead is it you know by thinking about my future by thinking about my results no it isn't but what is helpful well it's helpful if I turn up to my appointment on time and that's all I need to know right now is that it's at 9 30 done um so that's the biggest thing that I've kind of adopted as I was going through and I still follow now it's just really really baby steps um and in those times where I am getting overwhelmed I just try and take a breath and calm down and I just think okay what's the next step that I need to do that's the next step okay we're not going to think about anything else apart from that's what I need to know like do next um and i did uh, like I, I do speak to a psychologist every couple of weeks i started with a psychologist in february i think this year mm-hmm. um not really because i kind of felt like i needed to it was just more suggested to me by my hospital team they did say to me that like you have been through a lot <laughs> in this last year yeah. um do you think that it might be beneficial if you speak to someone and uh, at the time i was like oh, i might as well give it a go yeah. um and i was very grateful that that opportunity had been you know given to me so I was like okay yeah I'll give it a go um and actually it's been incredible and he also um very much instills and says to me you know in the, in those moments think about what is helpful to you um you know if you are getting upset and you are getting anxious and about certain things just sit there and think is it helpful if I sit here and think about this you know for example is it helpful if I sit here and I get angry towards the woman that misdiagnosed me no it isn't but then what is helpful to think about and for me it's like okay well in that moment what is helpful at the time in the last couple of months it was studying and it was getting me through the course so that now I can train people through their cancer treatment so mm-hmm. that was my focus and that's what was helping me at that time and it's just trying to kind of Address the feelings that you feel and let yourself feel those feelings. Um, Like he very much, he describes it as a beach ball. If you're trying to push a beach (laughs) ball down, it's just going to keep popping up. Um, And it's really true. Like if you're trying to suppress the feelings that you feel, they are just going to keep popping up and they're going to annoy you more and more because they're Mm -hmm. not going to go away. But it's like, okay, I know the beach ball is here. I'm just going to let it float around. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But I can also focus on other parts of my life um, and that's, yeah, you know, that's what I've kind of adopted and mm-hmm. that's what I do now.
1: Yeah. And it's really, I think really inspiring also how you have focused on other parts of your life and using, like you said, doing the, the training program now to train others through their cancer treatment. I know you've done a lot of work with uh, battle cancer as well, coming out, you know, making the trip to come out to the games, even while you're on treatment yeah. and just saying, Hey, I'm not just going to stop my life and sit here at home and, and wait through treatment, but I'm going to keep living my life and doing everything that I can. And that's, that's incredibly inspiring too. What has it been like for you and, and what has helped you make some of those decisions?
0: Um, I think I very like, I, cause a lot of people say to me, you know, Oh, I bet you wish that you must wish that this had just, you know, never happened. And you kind of, I get that quite a lot. And, um, so that I just kind of think, well, I can't wish that this didn't happen. You know, this this has happened, and mm-hmm. but I try and focus on what I actually have gained from this situation, and not what I have lost from this situation. Because what I've lost from this situation, potentially, I'm you know I'm not going to get back the last six months of my life when I was in the mm-hmm. hospital on a drip like I'm not going to get that back yeah but in that time what I did gain from that I gained a lot of independence and a lot of confidence that I didn't have before I was getting treatment by myself because of the fact that it was a pandemic um so I've got very very like used to going into the hospital just getting those treatments on my own like that didn't bother me in the end um and I my cat's now piping up <laughs> I hear him in <laughs> he the background wants to make an um having a feature <laughs> I thought it was too good to be true it was quiet for so long um, <laughs> but yeah i and then I just kind of think well, what can I gain from this and I know that I've gained the personal experience of seeing the benefits that training has had on me um so for me it then became, A very much a drive of, well, I want others to be able to see the benefit of this. And I think I've got a pretty powerful message in the sense of I'm not someone that, you know, you would expect potentially to have cancer. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, not that it sort of has like a a look, which is also what I try and drive for. A lot of people say Mm -hmm. to me, you don't look like you have cancer. And I'm very much pushing for the message of cancer doesn't have a look um you know what you see on the media as well and what you see in films and tv and stuff like that unfortunately it's very much driven trying to kind of be emotive um and you do you know you see that side of it but actually that terrifies people because then Mm -hmm. when they get diagnosed with that or they know someone that gets diagnosed with that all they can see is that image that they have Mm -hmm. um so while I was going through I was like well how do I change this? You know, I, I want to focus on what I can actually gain from this situation. And that has been speaking out on my social media. I'm very open. I'm very blunt um, with the way that I speak about mm-hmm. it, but I'm just taking the taboo away from cancer as a whole. um, not being uncomfortable about it not being embarrassed about it and also trying to take the fear away from it and as I started to be more and more open and then I started to get messages from people saying that they had found my profile through searching you know hashtag breast cancer whatever it might have been and they found it um when I particularly got messages from women saying that they'd just been diagnosed with breast cancer and they saw my profile and now they're not scared to go into treatment. That to me was incredible. And that continued to drive my force of being open, um, showing my journey and showing my treatment, um, you know, from everything that, that, that has happened. I've, I've shown every inch of it from the good to the bad to, you know, what might people might deem as embarrassing. I've, you know, showcased it all um to take that taboo away um and to make people more comfortable to hear the word cancer and to not fear the word cancer. Um, But also then I, from a training perspective as well, and that's why I very much got involved with battle cancer and um helped promote them as well, is that, The whole training through treatment, -treatment, post-treatment, that is still quite a fearful subject. People don't know how to exercise during treatment. Um, A lot of people didn't realize that they still could exercise during treatment. I get that a lot. I get a lot of people messaging me saying I didn't actually know that I I want to exercise, but I didn't know if I should. I didn't know if I could. And the more I was getting these things, I was like, there has to be something that I can try and do to change this. Um, And that's what I'm... You know, that's what I'm focusing in. And I think it's helped me. It definitely has helped me mentally get through my own treatment by kind mm-hmm. of plowing myself into other things as well. But
2: mm-hmm.
0: from that, I've tried to turn what could be a horrendous situation into something slightly more positive and, you know, see what I can actually gain from it, which at the moment has been uh, so many people that I've connected with on social media, at the games, like after the the panel talk, Mm -hmm. we did the amount of people that came up to me in the days afterwards asking to chat with me and saying that they were, you know, inspired by it and things like that. It's amazing. It's amazing the effect that being open about your story can have. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so it's just, I sort of more go through the mindset of, uh, yeah, okay, cancer is really rubbish sometimes, but I've gained so much in the last year. Um, I'm a completely different person to who I was previously. I'm way more confident. I'm way more appreciative of things in life. Strangely, I'm actually a lot calmer, I suppose, than mm. I used to be. Cancer's wow. actually calmed me. I'm not <laughs> as kind of like, I don't get stressed very easily, which actually is kind of sounds a bit strange. The fact of, you know, if you think about everything that's happened in the last year, yeah. you might think that actually I would be a complete stress monkey. I'm not, I'm the complete opposite. It's actually really de-stressed me in the way that I see life and I see yeah. that like, in yeah. day-to-day. Um, and so I actually think I've gained a lot of positives from cancer. And that's what I'm very much pushing for, is to kind of show that, yeah, it's you know, it's not great. Like it, you know, there were days where. I do have really down days, and that's completely normal, but um, I'm still pushing for, you know, this is what I've actually gained from it. I've gained a whole new career focus, a whole new appreciation, confidence. I'm doing amazing things. I'm experiencing amazing things like CrossFit Games and going Mm -hmm. out there and sharing my story and, you know, trying to tie that bridge that we were discussing about exercise and training and the medical world as well, and like, you know, bridging that gap between the pair. Um, yeah. So I just, that's, that's kind of like what I've, I suppose, gained. I, so I suppose incredible. I've gained multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> but, well,
2: you
1: have gained you know. a lot. You have gained a lot. And it's incredible. Like you said, you could, you, you've been through so much. And on top of that, a pandemic on top of that, having gone through your back surgery right before, and you could, have gone through this situation two very different ways and you've really, I think, made it the most positive it could possibly be. And I think just hearing your story and seeing the way that you talk about it, there's a few things that really stick out to me. The first that we talked about is really just being an advocate for yourself along every step of the path and knowing what is going to be best for you and, and advocating for that and talking to people about it and not just accepting things at face value. Um yeah. And then knowing that, like you said, cancer doesn't have a look that it can happen to anybody, even if you're young, even if you're healthy and, and whether it's just getting your regular screening tests or noticing changes in your body, and then really, really pushing and advocating for checking those out. um, I hope that people will do that too. And then, and then, like you said, your, just your mental attitude in general, all of the little lessons I think I've learned (laughs) from you here about just taking those baby steps, focusing on just the next step in front of you, trying to reframe things, um, trying to focus on what you can learn from them. And also just being open and vulnerable. I think sharing your story, whether it's, you know, whether it's people feeling comfortable sharing their story on social media, like you and connecting with, with others, or whether it's just being vulnerable with your friends and family and being able to share what you're going through and having that support or your, you know, your gym community, whoever it is, that's your community. There's so much that I think we all gain by, being real with each other and realizing mm-hmm. that we are all going through hard things. Obviously not all of us are going through the <laughs> same hard things you've been, you've had quite the hands that you've been dealt, but, but, um, but just sharing that, I think there's so much power and what, what um, brings us all closer together. And then the, the training, you know, knowing that exercise and training, whatever form that looks like can change through different phases of life. And, And is important for our mental health, but also our physical health and and can be a real adjunct to cancer treatment. So thank you for being such an advocate and really being (laughs) so open and sharing everything because you know I know you you see it like you said, the people that reach out on social media or that you talk to at the games or whatever, but you are touching so many people and it's incredible um, just to see that happen and see the the light that comes out of you. Yeah. I want to close with three questions I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. So the first one is what are the three things that you do now on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health?
0: Um, So I would say number one actually is sleep. Mm -hmm. I am very much an advocate for sleep now. I used to be horrendous with sleep. I used to go to bed late, I would get up early, as a PT, I'd always be up at you know 5 a.m. That was my alarm clock. But I would be awful at going to bed on time and just kind of got, I suppose, in an awful way, I just got used to being tired. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in the last year, seeing the benefit, actually, that sleep has. And I always heard about it. You know, everyone always says sleep more, sleep more. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, sure. Um, <laughs> I'll do that later. <laughs> but it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> but then it wasn't until I went through treatment and the only way that I would recover is if I slept. And if I had a day where I didn't sleep, I would really feel it. And I was like, okay, what these people have been saying for the last years I've kind of disregarded. And I'm like, yeah, sleep's great. Um, actually it really is. Um, so now I make sure that, you know, I am a bit of a grandma and I, I don't care. Like I, I, I go to bed at like half nine and and that's my bedtime. Um, but I feel great for it. I have, you know, energy from it and it's helped me recover through my treatment and it's helped me recover through my training. Um, so yeah, number one, every day, make sure that I, I get my sleep. Um, I think the second one would be activity of some level. Um, so, you know, not every day I, I don't train like people would kind of like view training. Um, but I move my body in some way, shape or form. Um, whether that be, you know, going out for a walk or doing some ability or like something of that sort. Um, M- more it kind of like I suppose came from my back injury um mm-hmm. sitting down was significantly detrimental mm-hmm. um to my back if I sat down for more than half an hour it would see so I just got yeah. used to kind of like even if it was just getting up and walking around my kitchen mm-hmm. um but exactly. then now I don't need to do that but I still just make sure that I am relatively active with my body um also from a mindset point of view as well like I just you know if I need to take five minutes out then I'll just go outside and I'll just you know if it's not raining which always is in London but um just some sort of like activity in space of some degree um and then the third one I think for my health I've really I hated mindfulness and meditation and all Mm -hmm. of that stuff before this year i really couldn't get on board with it um i really wasn't a fan of it i just didn't really see the point of it and i felt really uncomfortable doing it um but i've got into it but potentially not in the kind of the classical way um if i don't i'm still not quite there with kind of like listening to the meditative apps and things like that like i still sort of feel a bit strange but i always take time out of my day where it's just me um just even if it's just to like sit and be still and to be quiet and to just be in with my thoughts um and I used to think that sounded really like cliche and (laughs) a bit strange um but now I really understand why people do it Mm -hmm. um especially you know we were saying about kind of allowing yourself to feel feelings and in that moment of time like I don't push those feelings away and I think that's been really important to my mental health is in those times if I am feeling those feelings I let myself feel them and then I just kind of readdress why I'm feeling them and then I then just think about okay well how can I help that um or even if I don't think about that I just sit and I just have some time even if it's like 10-15 minutes of your day um, where you can just sit and be still and not be doing something you know not watching the tv not focused on anything but however you see mindfulness or you see meditation
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, doing that for like some part of your day and just allowing yourself to breathe um, that has been a, a, a huge um, part of yeah. like my daily routine now as well I love that. And I can relate to, it doesn't always have to be, you know,
1: an app or a formal practice, but finding, finding what yeah. works for you and having that space is so important. What, yeah. um what's one thing that you think would have an impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something that you're working on?
0: Oh, um, that's a good question. I would probably say the one thing that I do and I should probably be better at actually not so much nutrition nutrition is good but in terms of like um so when I had like when I had my brain surgery I actually switched off my hunger cue Mm. um so I could literally go through the day and not be hungry the only way that I actually know that I am hungry is I get really hangry like I get really (laughs) like grumpy and I'm like straight oh my (laughs) blood sugar yeah yeah Um, But I was also I was so used to having like eating out of a Tupperware box and rushing my meal between clients and things Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas actually the last year I've really tried to take a step back and not rush my food and Mm -hmm. not rush my time eating and Mm -hmm. actually, you know, spend the time making the right choices of your food Um, and actually just like sitting and eating it. Like that was kind of a something yeah. that I'm still getting trying to get better at. I'm still, because yeah. I, I am very busy, like with hospital appointments and things like that, I do sort of like try and like eat on the go and then you don't really sure. realise actually some days like you've barely really like eaten much because you're just kind yeah. of like on the go. Even um, that's sort of reinforced by the fact that, you know, my my signals are all funky. <laughs> um So yeah, one, like I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better at kind of like actually being like, no, I'm actually going to sit here for half an hour and I'm going to have a meal and I'm actually going to enjoy my meal and I'm going to eat and I'm not going to be eating while I'm walking or, you know, and I think that's something that everyone tends to do at some point, whether you even got like an office job or if you do have an active Mm -hmm. job or whatever it might be, you always see it. People are always constantly eating on the go. Mm -hmm. Um, And from a kind of like a health perspective in terms of like your digestion and actually ensuring that you've got mm-hmm. enough calories in your day as well. Um, just making sure that actually mm-hmm. you set yourself time um, because we have to eat. We're humans. Right. Like you have right. to eat, you have to take that time. Um, and it's another form of to... mindfulness too. But like you talked yeah, about earlier, it's exactly. another form of
1: mindfulness, just being in the moment yeah. and focusing on what's yeah. in front
0: of you. And eating without a screen as yes. well. Yeah. Everyone does that. They're like, <laughs> oh, I'll eat on my lunch break, but then have the screen on the like on the yeah. side and you're still yeah. answering emails while you're still doing it. It's like, no, just shut everything away and just you know focus on like your meal mm-hmm. at the time.
1: That's a great one. My last question is, what does a healthy life look like to you?
0: I think a healthy life to me just looks like what it sounds kind of cliche, but what makes you happy? Mm-hmm. Um, you know like you can't like I will never sit there and say to someone a healthy lifestyle looks like you going for a run twice a week and doing this and doing that and doing that if that makes you miserable that's not a healthy life Mm -hmm. um to me a healthy life is what makes you happy but what makes you feel good at that time and I think you know people that kind of maybe are stuck in a rut of thinking well sitting on the sofa and watching TV makes me happy. It's like, yeah, but does that make you feel good? And then when they then say, well, I've got back pain and I'm tired and you know, I'm like, if their diet's not very you know, good, say for example, and their blood sugars are up and down all the time and they don't understand why they're not sleeping well at night and things like that. It's like, well, you might think these things are making you happy, but are they making you feel good? And I think it's making sure that you've got the balance of both. Um, and I, I very much focused on that. Like now I I don't do things that I think are gonna make me healthy if they don't make me happy at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, there's certain like exercises that I absolutely hate. <laughs> yeah. So I just don't do them anymore because <laughs> I'm like, well, I really hate them. And I can do other things that I yeah. really like, which will actually have the same effect. Yeah. Um, and I think it and you know, it's and I I'm also I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed to say no to things. I, I was always very much a yes man. And I think now I'm kind of more of a, not more of a no man, but like if someone says, you know, or oh, do you want to do this? Or like, say for example, a social event, you know, or do you want to go out to like a bar or something like that? If I, before I would have been like, okay, yeah, sure. And then I would have gone along and I wouldn't have actually been very happy doing it um I might have thought oh this is kind of health in the way of like Mm -hmm. this is a healthy social life like you should Mm -hmm. be social um Mm -hmm. but is it making me happy no it's not because actually I'd quite like to be sat at home with a peppermint tea right now (laughs) (laughs) but like so then now I just do that and but then it kind of by doing that you actually see that I still see my friends a lot and I still Mm -hmm. have you know a lot of social occasions and I still chat with my friends and I'm not, I'm very much like not a lonely person, Mm -hmm. Um, but I like my alone time. I like being me Um, and I just take more time out to myself to do the things that I want to do, whether that be saying no to stuff. Um, And yeah, I think the best way that we can be is kind of not, don't always view health as being you know what you eat and what you do in terms of in the gym it's actually mm-hmm. so many other elements of it and it's kind of addressing it of what actually is going to make you happy so if you know health is mental health is physical um but finding the balance of doing everything in that that actually you enjoy so doing the mm-hmm. exercise you enjoy you know eating the foods that you enjoy but obviously try and eat the vegetables you enjoy and kind of have that balanced diet as well but you know if you want to eat an ice like have a pot of ice cream eat a pot of ice cream like those kind of things like if it's going to make you happy in that moment then yeah like have that balance but also from like a mental health and like social point of view Mm -hmm. um saying yes to the things that you know are going to make you feel good and feel Mm -hmm. happy and you're going to enjoy but don't feel pressured to do the things that you know, that you're actually not going to enjoy. Yes, I love that. It's such,
1: it's beautiful to see you living that out and really, um, really knowing what it is that you want and what is going to make you healthy and happy and, and really, again, advocating for that. So thank you so much, Fran. This has been amazing. Um, you are just you such awesome. a bright light in the world. And I know all <laughs> of us are rooting for you and supporting you and just glad to, to see and hear your story. So thank you so much. Thank you.
2: No, thank you
0: for having me.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you or someone you know has a story to share on a future episode of Pursuing Health, please write me at info at pursuing-health.com. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please also consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.